Welcome to Texas TL in Exile, episode number five. Uh, I am TL, and my special guest today is Robert Gore, who is the uh, mind behind the website Straight Line Logic. And we're going to talk a little bit about books, and we're going to talk a little bit about economics, because Robert is both an author, and he wrote the, uh, one of his books I've read is uh, The Golden Pinnacle, that I, I highly recommend. He's a very fine writer. Uh, but he also has a degree in economics. So we're going to get into some economic questions, some, some cultural, societal questions, and some a uh, little bit of a couple of writers talking about the business and uh, uh, what we've enjoyed and what we, what we found compelling about that. But one of the things I need to do before we go any further is something I've neglected to do until the end of the other videos. So I do want to encourage you to subscribe to the channel to let us have an idea how many people out there want to keep seeing these. And uh, also click the little rumble thing at the bottom or if you're um, on Anchor or Spotify, Apple, any of the uh, audio podcasts, please send a comment. With that, I'm going to bring in Robert. Thanks, TL. Great to be here. I wanted you to, for the audience and listeners, to explain a little bit about fiat debt, because that may not be a term that they're readily familiar with. But Fiat debt is a debt that's conjured out of thin air. And the two institutions that can conjure debt out of thin air are governments, of course, and they conjure a lot of it, and then central banks, which the process is a little more complicated, but uh, essentially what they do, uh, commercial banks, the big commercial banks all have accounts with the Federal Reserve. Uh, you hear the term printing money and in some instances, that's still true, but the main way that money is created, and it's not money, it's, it's debt, and there's a big distinction. But the main way debt is created by the Federal Reserve is they uh, uh, credit the account of commercial banks. Essentially what it is, is an, it's an exchange of fiat debt. It's the government's fiat debt for the... Uh, central bank's fiat debt. And there are people who believe that this actually has long-term beneficial economic uh, aspects. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know about anybody else, but the typical individual thinks that if they're gonna, if they're gonna incur debt, they have to have some collateral behind it. Yeah, and the typical individual when they Except for, say, a credit card debt where there's no stated collateral, but the credit card company can come after your assets if you don't pay the bill. Um, you know, most debt, the, the one we're all familiar with is mortgages. Your house right. is collateral for the loan. Um, there is no collateral for a government debt. Uh, you have a promise that they'll pay you back. What are they going to pay you back with? Another piece of government debt. The full faith and credit. <laughs> um, full faith and credit is a mirage. It doesn't yeah. exist. 
by now most people are a little more sophisticated and know that there's no real gold backing of the U.S. dollar. So it's basically money if you feel like it's money, right? If you believe it's money, it's money. If not, it's just a piece of paper with pretty ink on it. Um, you qualify for a PhD from a, some sort of Ivy League uh, economics department for what you just said. It, <laughs> it's money if people think it's money. Um, I have a different definition that stretches all the way back to Aristotle that says that money is essentially precious metals. And I won't go into all the markers Aristotle had, but the important thing about gold and silver and other precious metals that have been used as money, but primarily gold, uh, is that it's not anybody else's debt. Okay. Right. Gold is an asset, an unencumbered asset. And when you accept it in exchange, uh, there's no convertibility problem. It has intrinsic value. It's beautiful. It's divisible. Uh, all the reasons why societies down through history have preferred gold as, uh, as the monetary unit of exchange. Uh, the old adage is, you know, a thousand or 500 years ago, a man could buy a suit with an ounce of gold. Uh, you know, 500 years later, you can still buy a suit with an ounce of gold. Right. Uh, depreciation of the U.S. dollar, the fiat uh, debt unit, uh, has been somewhere in the neighborhood of 98, 99% since the uh, Federal Reserve was instituted. Right. Uh, this next question probably lays along with that. I've been thinking about for a while that all we've been able to accomplish in the past couple of decades is the perfection of irresponsibility. The perfection of irresponsibility is no one ever takes accountability for anything they've done or or anything that's gone along until you drive whatever system it is, you know, whether it's a business or anything else, to the point to where the only way to do anything about it is for it to collapse. And then people can pick up the pieces, but you can notice that in the government, you can notice that in the financial markets, you can notice that in a lot of things, as long as they can avoid responsibility, we can just keep going along. Just I think, uh, you might want to copyright that phrase perfection of irresponsibility because that is in fact uh, what has gone on. Um, and there's nothing just momentarily shifting back. There's nothing more irresponsible than creating debt, which obligates future generations to somehow pay back uh, to, this whole monetary, this whole debt creation, debt swap process is totally irresponsible. I, I was, I think, three or four years old when uh, the Bay of Pigs happened. And that was the last time that I can recall where a politician actually apologized and said, I screw up, I take responsibility. And he, Kennedy had been... Uh, According to most accounts, had been set up as a fall guy for the whole thing, but still he took the responsibility. Can, can you recall hearing a politician say, gee, I messed up. I made a mistake. I, I can't. No, you know what, what I hear him say is, 
Well, that's on me. I take full responsibility of it. Now, what used to go after that is I therefore resign my position. And But they don't say that anymore. They just, they take like ghost responsibility. <laughs> you know? That's right. Yeah. I, I, I take responsibility for that. Okay, well, what is the penalty? What is the consequence then? Yes, and, my, and in, in a business setting, yeah, the, and the corporation that I'm an, uh, an executive in will end up writing some sort of meaningless check to some sort of regulatory body or, uh, you know, some sort of court-ordered settlement. And then the next day, these guys are back in the uh, corner office and uh, doing whatever uh, they please. I'm not sure of the dates, but it was only like four years since Pfizer paid off a $2.3 billion settlement for corruption, bribery, false statements, all kinds of things. What happened? <laughs> Zero. And that just makes me want to run out and get the vaccination, knowing that <laughs> Paragon of Virtue, Pfizer, is the one who invented it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read your 2022 predictions in uh, your website, Straight Line Logic. Yeah. Um, can you give those prediction, predictions to the, uh, the listeners? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the title kind of uh, sets the theme, more stupidity, uh, more arrogance, uh, uh, more evil, and uh, more uh, rebellion. And... Yeah. History doesn't travel in straight lines, but my predictions for 2022 are pretty much a straight line until you reach a breaking point of what happened in 2020 and 2021. We have this gigantic um, coronavirus fraud, and I have posted and written a ton of articles. And, and I will say, I think I was earlier than most people catching on to the game. In March of 2020, I, I put up an article, uh, The Last Gasp, and I basically said, this is a and And knowing, ha having heard you talk about your political views, I'm willing to bet that you were extremely suspicious when they started talking about lockdowns and face masking and social distancing and all this other stuff. You know, normally when you go into a quarantine, it's because you're showing signs of the, the, the virus or what have you, not just randomly, you're not going to be able to go anywhere. No, I was, I was pretty adamant about it. I was willing to take that first day and say, we don't know what this is. We don't have enough information to really make any, any judgment yet. But I can tell you that that's never been the answer. So uh, it smelled different from the beginning is my point. I, I will tell you one personal experience that I had uh, with that, that not I had, but my mother had with the vaccines. My wife and I were in uh, Tempe, Arizona, visiting our son. And early one morning, uh, I got a call from my mom. And she had been having some medical problems that we that nobody could seem to pinpoint what was going on uh she had had both pfizer vaccines the second one in march of this year uh or last year uh 
and we get a, we, I get a call and, and her blood pressure had just skyrocketed. She was up in the one, you know, top number was in the 160s, 170s, uh, where it was normally down at 120, something like that. We'd taken her to a doctor two or three times. They'd give her blood pressure medication and it would get it down. But nobody could tell us why this was happening with her. So anyway, I get the call in Tempe in the morning and she says, I can't stand up. I'm in really bad shape. So uh, I live in Albuquerque, maybe a uh, my brother lives, I'm about 10 minutes from my mom, but I was in Tempe at the time. I, I called my brother, said, mom's in bad shape. You better get over there, maybe get an ambulance. So they did, the ambulance arrived. Um, her heartbeat is something like 10 beats uh, per minute. Uh, she's gray. The ambulance people are telling my brother, she is not gonna make it. They get her to the emergency room. They have her in the emergency room the whole time. Uh, for a whole day, and then they, she's in uh, intensive care for another five or six days, um, and they discover she's got a string of blood clots, pulmonary embolisms uh, in her lungs, okay, and at the time, you know, this was June, and the first real big wave of vaccine side effects was kicking in, right, and I didn't, uh, I, I talked to my sister who's a doctor and I said, could this be a side effect? She's like, no, 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 it can't be a side effect, but very low likelihood. I said, okay. But then I started digging into it. Well, you have something like a 900, 900 and I think it's 47 times the chance of getting a pulmonary embolism after you've had these vaccines now, than you do if you've never had the vaccine, just in the general. I mean, the pulmonary embolisms, we had taken my mom to a cardiologist two weeks before this happened. He didn't even test for them. These things are so rare in the general population. It's like uh, one, uh, one per three million people. Okay, but now they're happening all over the place and all these blood clots and all, all this other stuff. So. That threw the vaccines out the window for me. It was just, you know, uh, then you start really digging in and you start looking at people like, uh, there's a, a Dutch epidemiologist, I believe he's an epidemiologist, Geert Van, Van den Bosch, starts talking about, you know, uh, intentional or not, this looks like these things are designed to kill a lot of people. Right. <laughs> You know, compared to where we were two years ago when all this stuff started breaking, uh, the one good thing you can say is a hell of a lot of people are now aware that there are these issues, you know, that there are these side effect issues, that there's these questions of intent. Uh, what are the, are, are these people trying to institute this global totalitarianism? Is that the extent of what they're doing? Are they just trying to make a boatloads of money, which they're doing? Uh, is there something more nefarious here? Are they trying to wipe out a good chunk of the population? At least a lot of people are aware of those issues. And um, I think Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book about Fauci, uh, he deserves a Nobel Prize or some sort of blue ribbon or gold medal or something for public service, just taking on that whole complex. Uh, he's 
just been buried with uh, abuse and whatnot, but I haven't read the book. I've read five or six reviews of it, uh, you know, but he's opened up a lot of eyes. He's got a number one Amazon bestseller. Uh, you or I would die to have his readership on that book. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll take a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Send some of that my way. So, uh, so my prediction for 2022 is, is, you know, the bad people aren't going to get any better. They're not going to become admirable human beings. They're just going to continue doing what they're doing um, until somebody, you know, until they push the rest of us too far. And, you know, we're starting to see uh, the seeds of rebellion, I guess you can call it. I, I think, uh, I think uh, when the Southwest pilots all called in sick uh, because of the vaccine mandates, I think that was a turning point. Uh, but you can only back up people so far. You know, you, you take away their jobs and now, uh, you know, people are seeing, you know, prime of life athletes collapsing on playing fields and uh, dying and so on and so forth. And that's not really supposed to happen. And right. there's, they're asking questions and, and drawing lines in the sand. And so, you know, I think you push people about as far as you're going to push them. Well, I hope so. Um, because nothing's going to change until they figure that out. Hey, one of the things that's been on my mind also lately, and I, I hate to hit you with so many economic questions, but uh, okay. I, I think it's very educate, uh, instructive to the readers and, and, uh, or the, uh, uh, the viewers and the listeners, because they don't usually get the ability, they don't usually get real economics. But I've something that's been bugging me for a while is the debt to GDP ratio, which right was at a high to, this year of I think a hundred and um, I had it here one hundred thirty five percent of the GDP. It's come down a little bit, probably with with tax revenues down to 122 percent. But even pre-pandemic, it was at 105 percent. To me, that's you know, I'm I'm a layman, but to me, that's a big that's a big problem. How big of a, a an economic impact does that have that nobody's going to see? But but behind the scenes, it's 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 more serious or. Or is that just something that I look at that uh, I don't understand? I think there's a lot of economists out there who would like you to believe that you don't understand it. But I think the, uh, un the, the common understanding, I mean, you know, if you run up your credit card debts and take out a second mortgage and so on and so forth, if your total debt eventually eat reaches a level um, debt and debt service involves two components. You're paying an interest rate and you're paying back some principal. Um, at some point, uh, and I, I don't have a percentage of what it would be for an individual, it varies, but at some point for any individual who's running up their debt, the debt service starts cramping their lifestyle. Okay. Uh, you know, if, if 25, 30, 40, 60, 70% of your budget 
is spent on debt services, it leaves nothing else for consumption, investment, uh, uh, you know, putting money into, say, learning a new skill, uh, you know, what, what an economist would call a capital investment in yourself. Um, the same thing happens with, with, with countries. Uh, you know, you hear all sorts of stuff, oh, we owe it to ourselves, blah, 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 blah. But at some point, debt service becomes onerous. And it's nice when you got a central bank out there who's buying up your debt and keeping interest rates low. Um, but when the debt service becomes large enough, it, it starts crowding out other things, no matter what you've got with a central bank, uh, you know, uh, and politicians hate making choices, but um, it, it becomes an economic burden and it, it becomes a burden on your economy. Uh, and that's where it first uh, really shows up. And you look like, you look at a country like Japan, which is kind of the world champion in uh, debt to GDP. It's up over 400 <laughs> Like 237%, I think. Uh, yeah. It, and, you know, among developed countries. Um, but you look just pure economics, what's happened to their economy. I mean, they really have shown no growth now since the stock market uh, topped out in the late 1980s. And their stock market is still not back to where it was back at the top in 1989. Um, and you look demographically, and this is kind of a sociological point, um, but their birth rate has absolutely collapsed. Right. And you cannot tell me that a, a, a country where economic opportunity is shrinking because more and more resources are devoted to debt service, you can't tell me that that doesn't affect people's psychology. I mean, having a child is an act of optimism. Right. <laughs> I, mean, it's, I mean, here's one really, really telling statistic about Japan. They sell more diapers for old people than they do for babies in that country. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a real critical point in your society right there. Um, when you were talking about debt service, the way I've explained it, and I think we're somewhere around $500 billion or something in debt service. We may not be that high, but it seems like I saw that somewhere. And if you think about that, that's $500 billion out of your economy, and you haven't bought a single pencil. That's right. This is what we continue to do is these big spin spending bills, these big stimulus packages to eke our economy along. It just it goes through the roof. And I, I don't I'm not sure how Japan manages it, but it looks well, like we're trying to find out because we're trying to, we're trying to catch them or something. Well, in Japan uh, and now in Europe as well, uh, the central banks are basically the only buyers of government debt. There is no market. Right. If Japan or Europe had to have an honest, uh, well, if the central banks weren't involved and they had to pay market interest rates on their debt, they'd be sunk. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're talking right now, we have inflation that's officially, I believe, 6.2, 6.3, something like that, 6 point something percent. That's right. the official inflation rate. 
there are people, there are organizations that make a point of calculating the inflation rate by the same metrics that were used back in the 70s or whatnot, and they come up with numbers ranging from 12 to 15 percent. You loan the federal government money for 10 years right now, they're paying you 1.7 percent roughly. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't believe that situation. I mean, I mean, they are handing you at least a five or six percent loss per year in real value. Right. Um, and it could be a lot more. When interest rates really start going up, um, governments are sunk. We're talking potential hyperinflation as well, don't you don't don't you see that as kind of the real what I see as a the crisis? I mean, if we needed another crisis, we might get it. But the crisis I see is when the only way to stem inflation is to raise interest rates. But to raise interest rates will kill the economy. One thing uh, that presents a problem if you're going to do that, especially if the U.S., is that you have a lot of foreign holders of your debt. And they're under no obligation to own it. And they can start selling if, if you're handing them real losses every year. Uh, and you look at countries like uh, China, which has been a big U.S. creditor who has been gradually reducing their uh, holdings of right. U.S. debt. Um, so you've got that choice, or you can say, all right, um, we don't want our currency's value to collapse to zero. Uh, we have to do something about this. Um, we've got to reduce deficits. We've got to raise interest rates. Uh, all of, uh, you probably remember what Paul Volcker did in the early eighties. There was a good, uh, good, um, article on that but it was about thomas honig who was a uh um he was a bank examiner in the 70s and became a, a member of the fomc later on and he was the only dissenting um voice on the fomc when they wanted to start quantitative easing after the economic crisis in 2008 this is in 2010 and he eventually resigned in 2011 because they wouldn't they didn't listen to him and, and, you know, he, he was looking at it going, this is not good, you know, and some of the others would say it's not good, but they went ahead and voted for it anyway. And if you don't mind, I'm going to jump to and kind of bridge the gap between economics and politics here. And oh, sure. I've been toying with the phrase neo-communism. And on your website, I was looking around and I saw that there was an article there by uh, Jeff Thomas, and he was talking about f fascism is what we basically have, which fits in with what I was talking about as far as neo-communism. And I don't know if that's a term from anybody else. It's, it's you know, something that helps me think about where we're at. To me, neo-communism is where the communists have gotten sophisticated enough to know they don't need to own it all if they can control it all. They don't have to own the means of production if they have total control of the production. And evidence of that was over the lockdown where they could shut down any company that they wanted 
and let any other company go. If you don't have absolute control of that moves you from what Mr. Thomas was talking about is that moves you into fascism. And I think by a strict definition, he's right. But that always gets lumped in with Hitler. And he's not the most, he wasn't the most dangerous guy on the planet. You know, Stalin and, and, and Mao are probably the more dangerous individuals. So I, I don't tend to want to, I don't want to tend to bring my criticism against fascism near as much as I do neo-communism. The term actually that I use, and it's an umbrella for everything you're talking about, neo-communism, fascism, corporatism, uh, socialism, uh, all the isms except capitalism is uh, collectivism, right. uh, which basically says the state can take whatever it wants from you under the guy, under the, you know, uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, or just we're going to take it because we can, which is kind of the bare knuckled uh, fascist approach or the the Nazi approach. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, you ask yourself, you know, am I free to decide what I want to do with my life? Do I get to keep the fruits of my labor? Um is the government set up to protect my rights or to destroy them? Um, and those are kind of the distinctions I make. But I've read a fair number of articles in the uh, alternative media. This is this, is this this is communism, this is neo... I, I haven't seen your term, neo-communism, which I think is a pretty good term just uh, because it seems like all these really crappy ideas just keep resurfacing and resurfacing and re I mean, we just got through a century and you want to talk mass slaughter. Uh, there's a good book, uh, Death by Government. I forget the guy who, who wrote it, but he tallies up all the, I, I mean, you're talking a hundred million plus just in China and uh, Russia, the communist states. Right. You would think after that, that nobody would have anything to do with anything that was called communism or neo-communism or socialism. Uh, you know, similarly, look at what Hitler did. And these guys were basically all killers. And when it gets right down to it, when you're lined up at the wall and they've got the guns pointed at you, you really don't care too much about their philosophy. What you do care about, uh, if that's where your thoughts are leading, is, God, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a philosophy uh, where, you know, my life is not the property uh, of the state and the state can't do uh, what it wants with it. What you were pointing out is what I, I, I find amazing also is we just came out of the bloody 20th century. I mean, what a, what a century for killing human beings. And you yeah. would think that there would have been a lesson somewhere along the line that this is not the way to go and it's like the minute we hit 2000 we reset the clock none of that happened we can look now we can look at communism as you know it's like a <laughs> big joke about everybody comes along and they go well the only reason it turned out like that was because they've never really tried communism and one of the one of the uh, points that that uh, mr thomas was making was when, no, what we've never really tried is capitalism. 
you know, from the, from the beginning, from the middle, from everywhere you start with it. Next thing you know, you have the government's fingers in the market trying to manipulate one thing one way or the other, too. And, and so um, you would think there would be mass revulsion at anybody who, who proposed anything that looked like any of those isms that slaughtered all those people. Uh, capitalism's problem is, uh, you know, you get these bursts, brief instances of freedom in human uh, affairs where people are pretty much uh, free to do what they want, to work, to keep what they make, uh, you know, with, and it's incredibly productive. I mean, the, the uh, I mean, I wrote the golden pinnacle, my, my novel was set in the industrial revolution. I mean, the world has never seen a period that basically spanned from the end of the civil war to the first world war just about every single technology we have was invented in that period. And the wealth that was created and people say, oh, these people were exploited. Yeah, they were exploited uh, to the point where millions of them were coming to the United States, immigrating of their own free choice because they could make a better life because they could take advantage of these situations. Some of them were gonna become uh, at least affluent, and a few of them were going to become very wealthy, and and so on and so forth. And uh, the one thing I found researching my book is uh, a there's very few histories written about the period. There are a few good biographies of some of the giants of the period, um, but I I never could find a comprehensive uh, history uh, of the Industrial Revolution, and you know what's mostly said about it is it's just false it's propaganda well getting into a little bit a little bit lighter subjects um i wanted to let you know that i i enjoyed the golden pinnacle that's the one that i have from you that's that's signed and uh unfortunately it's been a while i don't quite remember but i do remember that you were a very good writer i i really well, enjoyed that book so one of the questions I had is what uh, what uh, what brought you to writing uh, fiction? Because I think you do pretty good in nonfiction too. So you have these ideas, and I enjoy writing, um, and I just I just enjoyed it. You know, it, it, it's something. Uh, Given the way things are in the writing world, and and I'm sure you've run into this, uh, the conventional publishing and everything else uh, is pretty much stacked against people of our political persuasion. I'll just put it that way. So if you're going to write, and I told myself this from the very beginning, if, I, if you're going to write, you better really enjoy it. And you know, it's just that simple. And, and, you know, I have these ideas running through your, my head and it's a tremendous challenge to try to, to mesh plot lines and character development and uh, theme, themes and thematic uh, sort of development and get it all put together and then try to make it what I call a seamless reading experience where uh, you know, you're having an effect on a reader and the reader doesn't even realize, you know, uh, that it's just like there's no intermediate process between the words on the paper and the and the brain of the reader. And they're just they're just taking it all in. And uh, and that's what the story is to them. And they're taking something from the story. I uh, 
in Shadow Soldier, that was a, a, a novel that it dealt with Texas history. Now, if you understand Texas history and Texans, you better get it right. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, they're very unforgiving. They, they know their Texas history and um, you can't bluff them. I wound up reading something like 37 books in order to get things right in order to, to write that one. Now, isn't it fun to weave a story through the actual history? I, I find yeah. that enormously just plain fun. You, you're trying to think up storylines that are going to fit. <laughs> well, one of the things, one of the things I did that I, that I, I did just for people like me who like to read history, but also like, like fiction that deals with history. One of the reasons I liked your book. Um, and what I do is I always put some really obscure individual or event into the fiction so that for people like me who are like, well, I'm not sure that happened. They can look it up and sure enough, there was that guy there and he was there at that time and, or, or that event did happen it, it, that nobody's really ever heard of. I want to pay them off. Well, I'm working on a book now. Uh, it's on the scale of, I, I mean, I, after Golden Pinnacle, I did a satire set in the Middle East, uh, and I did uh, the business book, the fiction book, uh, everything I know about business I uh, learned from The Godfather. But now I'm working on a book that uh, the Golden Pinnacle was, uh, it was and is uh, intended to be the first of a trilogy. So I'm working on the second volume of the trilogy, which is set uh, World War II running up to uh, the 1970s, 1980s. But it has a big section on Vietnam. And I'm not a veteran. I knew very little about the military. So the research I've had, and you know, you're writing about something where there are people out there who were there, they know. It, that's tough. It's been the toughest thing I've ever had to write. And I've been lucky. I've developed some friendships with, well, I've developed one real key friendship with a guy who was a, uh, was in Vietnam. And he was a guy who was sent out to retrieve uh, helicopters that had been shot down and crashed. So he knows a lot about it. And he's really helped me. Uh, you know, I, I'll certainly acknowledge him when it, the time comes and everything, because uh, he's been invaluable. But you know, you want to get all these details right. I, I had a little leeway in the Industrial Revolution book, The Golden Pinnacle, because so many, so few people really know very much about the history. Uh, I wasn't going to have anybody standing up and jumping up and down and saying that didn't really happen in 1892 or whatever. Right. You know, it's just, but the Vietnam book, I got to be very, very careful. Well, I was going to say, if, if I think Texas history is bad, <laughs> I would really hate to hate to, to to not have the Vietnam War because there's only so many Texans, but there's an awful lot of Vietnam War veterans would know whether you were right or wrong. I'm going to give you time to, to get into any other subject you want to. I was on the phone with a guy today and I was talking uh, with him. And this is one of these people who's extremely paranoid about uh, COVID. And we used to get together, I'd go over to his house, we'd sit out on the front porch and have tea and whatnot. 
And uh, one day I get an email from him, come on over, but it'll have to be when my wife's not here because we can't have unvaccinated people in our house, but we can just go outside. And I thought, you know, I'm real uncomfortable with that situation. I said, you know, let's wait till all this stuff blows over, but I don't want to sneak around or whatnot. But I was talking to him today and he's, you know, talking about everything on the TV and everything. I said, I, I said, I haven't watched TV in two years. I said, that's why I'm so healthy. (laughs) I think the number one thing I said in that piece, that 2022 piece, I said, uh, uh, you know, the graveyards are going to be filled up with people who don't do their own thinking. They don't think for themselves. I said, I, I don't, I think right now we are at a juncture where the consequences of letting other people do your thinking, the consequences of fear, the consequences are greater and far more disastrous than they've probably ever been. And it's absolutely essential that you listen to programs like this, that you get on the internet, that you get away from the mainstream media and you dive into this, uh, and not just from a medical point of view, but from the sociological and the political point of view, and certainly the economics. We've talked about the huge debt that's been incurred in the last two years. It's unprecedented. It's, we're seeing it show up. I see it show up every time I go to the grocery store or the gas station. Uh, I really think that's only going to get worse. Uh, you can't just turn the spigot off. Uh, we just talked about you do turn the spigot off. You're looking at, it, you know, probably a global depression. They're stuck. So I think the thing I, I would say is, you know, get off the beaten track. Go look at what uh, people who are saying who are not uh, who are not called the experts, the science, the this, the that. Uh, there's a lot of re- there's a, a handful, I guess, of uh, doctors, uh, Malone, uh, McCullough. Uh, there's about 15, 20 of them who are risking everything to tell you the truth. And you've got to be open to it. Joe Rogan last week got 50 million uh, people listening to uh, his podcast with uh, Malone, uh, right. Robert W. Malone. Malone ha- now has a Substack thing. He got kicked off the social media. I would say start with that podcast, find a copy of it or find a copy of the transcript but educate yourself uh, and take responsibility for your own education, for your own life. Because if you don't, uh, 2022, 23, 24, if you last that long, uh, are going to be very, very bad years. The, the great year of Darwinism. Huh? <laughs> yeah. you, you, I, think, I think that's one of the, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's one of the biggest points that need to be made all over america right now is none zero none of the institutions that we have traditionally relied upon to just do their job we're not asking them to be heroes we're just asking them to do their job and none of them are doing it and so if none of the the media isn't doing it the doctors aren't doing it 
the cops aren't doing it. The military isn't doing it. The Congress certainly isn't doing it. The Supreme Court isn't going to do it. The corporations aren't even doing what you would rely on them to do, which is to protect their own profits and their own bottom line. At least you should be able to count on that. Um, if you're not informed for yourself and your family on what is right and wrong and healthy and not healthy, there's no saving you. Yeah, there's nobody out there who's going to hold your hand. Mm -mm. Yeah, it's a, it's all got to be on your own, and you you find. I mean, just look at something like Let's Go Brandon and how that whole thing took off. Yeah, I mean, it's got its humorous aspect, and, and I, I think it's great, but there's a lot of people out there who are rejecting what's going on. At some point, I, I you know, I, I use the term uh, rebellion in that uh, title, and I, I think that's what we get. Yeah, I, I agree with you there, and I think we're, we're rapidly approaching that. I mean, you know... It, People who love history always marvel at those novels that were written like right before some big, you know, on the on the eve of 9-11, on the eve of you know World War II, on the eve of World War One, you know, then they they they're writing about all of this and you think, oh yeah, just wait a year or two, you know, and it's it's gonna be completely different, you know. So uh even even like Grapes of Wrath, like you you mentioned Steinbeck earlier, you know you're 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 watching all that and you're thinking, yeah, well, you know, World War II is coming down the road. I'm really feeling like I'm on that uh, I'm on that edge that that all of the things are lining up for some cataclysmic event, which is a word I was thinking about before and couldn't come up with. Yeah, um, some cataclysmic event. I, I agree with you 100. percent We're heading to some sort of crash. I think they've got it. You know, this is this is part of uh, you know perfecting your responsibility. We're at a point where it can't do anything, but it's got to crash now. Yeah, I, everything has consequences, and and we're sitting down to a big banquet of con consequences. To, yeah, and, and nobody nobody's nobody's able to even get out of their own way well enough to solve a problem, even any little problem. You know, it was like you were talking about Paul Volcker earlier. You know, I, I was reading that article. He wrote, he came in and dumped 10% interest rate overnight, 10%. About six months later, I think he dropped another 10%. He jacked it up to 20% to try to get a handle on the inflation that they'd built out of, you know, all the speculation that went on, you know, the whole generation or the whole uh, decade. And I, we don't have that kind of leadership. Somebody who says, I'm going to do the hard thing, and I know you're going to crucify me for it, but I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, compared uh, their debt compared to ours back then when Volcker did what he did was it's a drop in the bucket. OK, now they had they were running some pretty severe inflation. But right. can you imagine if somebody did that now with all the debt we've got outstanding? I mean, it'd be a black hole. Well, I appreciate having you, and, and I really look forward to maybe we can get together some other time, maybe uh, some other issue. Uh, you know, the door is always open. Uh, if there's something yeah. you want to talk about down the road, let me know. I certainly shall. Well, that was Robert Gore of the website Straight Line Logic. I am very honored to have had him on the podcast today. And I'm honored to have you listen or watch or however you happen to get this uh, podcast. 
be sure to try to subscribe or uh, hit a rumble button or a like button or a comment on whatever platform you find it on. It's on Anchor and Spotify and Apple and a couple others. And uh, so if you can do that for me, I'd appreciate it. There's a way on Anchor to support what we're doing down here. Uh, it's important for me to get a feel for whether this is going to work out or not. But uh, I'm enjoying it right now with guests like Robert. It makes it a lot easier. So until next time, folks, adios.